Welcome back. It's your guest host, Deb Hutton. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. And in the next half hour, I am joined by Karen Stintz, former city councillor and TTC chair, now president and CEO of Variety Village. Gratton Singh, who is a vice president at Crestview Strategy, a community advocate, and a lawyer, and Sarjeet Kaur, co-founder of KPW Communications. Welcome back to The Rush. To all of you, let's get started with the fact that the Ontario legislature has resumed sitting as of this morning. Uh, everyone is back looking their best. Legislation being introduced to do all kinds of things we heard about last week. I want to ask each of you, I'll start with you, Karen, what you think this session will mean for any or all of the parties? Well, I think this is a session of reset a little bit. And, um, you know, the government's coming out strong with initiatives that uh, they believe will um, inspire people to, you know, to, to, to believe that they still are governing in their interest and uh, to really make sure that, you know, and to use this time to paint Bonnie Crombie in a way that is um, a foil to them and what their government is trying to achieve. So I, I think it will be interesting to watch. Gratton Singh. It's been a really rough ride for the Doug Ford Conservatives. They're currently under RCMP criminal investigation. They are reeling from the... Uh, the Ontario Court of Appeals decision repealing Bill 124. You know, I know they're putting forward this uh, this bill called uh, Get It Done, but it's more likely going to be a bill that would be, I think their track record has been, you know, what are, what are we going to get undone? Because since they've come into power recently, they've been just having to repeal or rescind everything from the dissolution appeal to the Green Belt to Bill 124, notwithstanding clause and more. So, it's it's a definitely a rough patch. We've seen big, uh, high name conservatives leave, like Parm Gill. We saw the resignation of previously of three cabinet ministers, or, or sorry, two cabinet ministers and a uh, and a MPP. So like it's it's a their back is against the wall, and they're they're obviously you know worried about Bonnie Crumby, who's who's gaining a lot of uh, momentum and a strong opposition with the NDP. So they need to really just try to get control of the the narrative back because right now there's a strong narrative against them. Uh, Sarjeet, I was just going to let everybody do their their thing as Karen and Gratton have done, but I have to say, I, I don't know that Bonnie's gaining a lot of momentum here. <laughs> I mean, the numbers are pretty solidly still as we approach the half-year point, uh, sorry, the half-mandate point of the Ford government. The, the numbers are still fairly solid for Doug Ford and his Conservatives. You know, I think they definitely see her as a threat and as a viable candidate. And it takes a lot of foresight to know that people make their decisions, uh, you know, within three weeks of an election. So there's a lot of space between now and then for her to gain that space. But it's a combination of factors. It's not just her, as Gurudan and Karen mentioned. Uh, you know, when you when you start getting sidetracked, you know, some of these things that get it done is what they campaigned on, and then they got off track. So now they're kind of struggling. You call it a reset or erase people's memories to get people to forget about Greenbelt, forget about Bill uh, 124 and all of the other the things that have really sidelined them and taken them off of what they campaigned on and what people expected from them. So now you're kind of catching up. It doesn't resonate as well as if you had just been doing these things all along instead of, you know, falling into these pitfalls. 
So there's an interesting announcement. I haven't had a chance to talk about this uh, yet this afternoon, so I'm curious for, for each of you to give me your take on this. Loblaws has announced just this morning that they are going to create thousands of jobs. They're building uh, or moving into 40 new locations for their, their stores across their suite of brands. Uh, they're moving 10 stores and revamping 700. $2 billion, they say, investing where Canadians need it most. Karen, I'll start with you again on this. I'm a bit torn because uh, it, it strikes me as incredibly tone deaf at a time when Canadians are struggling from, you know, food insecurity mm-hmm. and high prices that we're investing in all of these stores. It strikes me as just yet again on Loblaw's part out of touch. That being said, I'm a big proponent of capitalism and, and let the market decide. They must see something here that that I don't. Well, yeah, it's it's curious. I'm sure that they expected a good news announcement and were you know waiting to reap the rewards for their big investment into the Canadian economy, and probably were caught a bit by surprise at the reaction that if you're if you have enough money to invest two billion into your store makeovers, why are food prices as high as they are? And and I think you're right. I think that that might have they might not have appreciated the level of insecurity that Canadians are feeling right now and didn't didn't expect that reaction and I think it will actually I think but but I think that they needed to hear it and I think that they might you know take pause and really um reflect on you know when they make big announcements around pharmacare and and you know being a sole provider of manulife and then they make big announcements about how they're going to invest two billion they have two extra billion dollars sitting around why can't you lower the price of milk kind of thing so I, I think I think they reaction that they got wasn't intended, but I'm glad it was received. Garatin Singh. Well, this is where as a, as a staunch social Democrat, you know, I, I have to say that this is why we need, um, you know, a strong uh, government policy to ensure that uh, we have policies in place that are allow people to have access to affordable food. And we need to have, make sure that we can't just leave these things up to the market. You have to leave these things up to, you need government intervention to ensure that people have, like look at the res- the result of it otherwise. People are struggling to pay the bills, people are struggling to put food on the table. It's a really tough time for folks. And this is why we need strong reaction from all of the government, but particularly, of course, the federal and provincial government to make sure that food is more accessible and to make sure that people have the support they need. And, you know, I call on government to continue to take action and to bring in some sort of policy to, to make life better. But what does that look like? Like, I'm actually truly curious to know what that looks like. So we've seen a variety of policy put, put, being put forward or suggested, everything from windfall taxes and, you know, to other forts of affordability measures. But that can be a variety of things, right? It can be ensuring there's legislation that, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, uh, affordability that, you know, is accessible to people. It's about making sure that people pay their fair shares that can be reinvested to other parts of the economy. It's making sure there's an equitable lens on policy uh, when it comes to uh, these sorts of players that result in a benefit for, for consumers. Sarjeet Kaur, your thoughts on this? I think it's a fascinating case study in communications, how a company can enter into a you-can-do-no-right territory, that every positive (laughs) announcement, I can imagine that they would be thinking, this is great news, we are building stores where there are maybe not a lot of grocery options, 
you know, the line item in the budget is completely separate for upgrading. They might think it's things that have to happen for accessibility, for safety, for lighting and whatnot, and you can't just reallocate it to reducing the price of milk. But none of that matters, and people do not care when you have become one of the most hated companies in Canada. And I don't know how they got here because, frankly, you know, it wasn't that long ago that they were just a respected company. I have family members who've worked there. Their jobs are unionized. The stores are relatively, you know, accessible and clean, but the affordability uh, pricing has overshadowed uh, shadowed any goodwill they have. And it just goes to show that if you ignore one aspect of public concern, the public is going to punish you in so many other ways. Karen, you were going to jump in on this? Yes, yeah, sir. I didn't mean to, to interject, but I, I, you know, I think that this is a prime example of why the government doesn't need to be involved, because I think the power of the people are going to speak and that as a business, they're going to respond more swiftly to public opinion than they will to any government policy. Except it doesn't work. Well, look at the result of that. It's a bit of a monopoly, and you don't have a lot of choices, right? People have the ability to choose, but they're limited by their choices. So if there's only law laws and no frills, and they're all owned by the same person, the consumer's power is also limited. All right. And people are struggling now, right? No, just to say, like people are struggling at this exact moment. So to say that government interventions are necessary doesn't put in, take into account that it should have been implemented earlier because we needed to prevent this affordability crisis through government action. So clearly, it didn't, you know, you need government action, otherwise you get this result. People who are struggling to put food on the table. All right, so much more to say about that, but we're going to cut that off at this stage and move on to something new after the break. Karen Stintz, Gretton Singh, Sarjeet Kaur, our smart speakers this afternoon. Coming up after the break, I didn't even know personal cyber insurance was a thing. Apparently it is, so I'm going to ask the panel, do they have it? Would they consider it? Is it useful? You're listening to The Rush with Deb Hutton on News Talk 1010. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. I'm your guest host, Deb Hutton, with you until 6 o'clock, and then it'll be time for the CTV News at 6, which you can listen to right here on News Talk 1010. But right now, I am joined by three of our smart speakers, Karen Stinst, former city councillor and TTC, TTC chair, now president and CEO of Variety Village, Gratton Singh, who is vice president at Crestview Strategy, a community advocate and lawyer, and Sarbjeet Kaur, who is co-founder of KPW Communications. I mentioned just before we took a break for traffic that there is something called cyber insurance. I was completely unaware of it. Depending on your provider and your plan, it can do such things as protect you for unauthorized use of bank accounts or credit cards, which I think makes some sense. Here's the interesting one, counseling and social media monitoring for cyberbullying and professional help if you're being extorted. Karen Stintz, are you way more hip than I am? You knew about this, and is it something you would do? Uh, no, I did not know about this. Um, <laughs> I, I did, <laughs> so I'm not hip. <laughs> uh, I, we do have cyber insurance for the organization Variety Village and Variety of the Children's Charity because we have seen... And we've been told by the industry that it's it's a concern and an escalating concern. And with the use of AI, um, there's so many more ways that people can try to scam you or extort you. And so it's probably something of the future and probably something that's going to become more prevalent. Uh, I don't have it. And um, my social media is pretty much restricted to my LinkedIn, so I probably won't get it. But I'm guessing it's going to be a requirement um, in the near future. Grattan saying your thoughts on it, on personal cyber insurance. 
Yeah, so the the bank stuff like makes a lot of sense to me. I'm really curious to understand a little bit further about like the, you know we know there's a really real issue with social media, especially on bullying and, and people just being targeted and, and everything in that respect. And I'm just interested in like what kind of support systems can an insurance system bring in for something for like you know the the social media and the world is a bit of like the wild wild west. We don't have a lot of protections legislated in right now for to prevent this kind of targeting. So I just I'm curious on how that aspect of it will provide a benefit to the consumer. Because uh, outside of real legislation that says, you know, around, I always think of like, you know, younger people who are getting targeted or who have been victim to bullying online. The solution to me in that kind of respect would be protections brought in by law. I'm just curious how insurance <laughs> would help provide that kind of support to someone in need. Yeah, Sergeant Kaur, I mean, um, there's so many elements to this. I'll let you take it wherever you want to go. But it does make some sense to me. Uh, Like Gratton, I wonder how it would actually functionally work. But there are some plans as low as $6 a month that you tack on to your home insurance policy, and it's just additional insurance. Well, this is the beauty of uh, capitalism, I guess, finding new and interesting ways to make uh, people pay more money. So we talked about affordability. We talked about capitalism. And last week, we talked about the police budget. My issue here is that the cost always falls on the consumer. If we are already paying, uh, you know, the police to enforce, you know, certain measures and keep us from getting defrauded, we are already paying services like Yahoo or all these people who have our confidential information or telephone companies, and yet scammers can still call us from Nigeria or wherever, some of the responsibility has to be on them. If I still have to get insurance and protect myself, I'm essentially paying three times. And in the United States, what they've done, huge fines for when there's data breaches, Yahoo and whatnot, they get fined, which then forces those companies to do a better job of protecting your data and your privacy and all of these things that result in the risks that we uh, are are encountering. And I do know in Canada they're looking at something similar because otherwise a company is not motivated to really put in the investments that they need to do to improve security. Yeah, there's no doubt the United States is far ahead of this, both on the points you're making, Sarjeet, but also on personal cyber insurance as well. So they've headed down both of those paths. Um, Interesting comments I found from the Federal Minister of uh, Mental Health and Addiction. She says that those of us, and I will put me in that category, who have some concerns with safe supply, in other words, uh, the pilot projects that they have in the country where the government actually supplies uh, with taxpayer dollars a pharmaceutical alternative to people who have opioid opioid addictions. She says that if you have a concern about this, it is rooted in fear and stigma. I will say, because I do have a concern about government being in this role, Karen Stins, that I, I just, I don't think it's rooted in fear and stigma. For me, it is just a belief that government should not be providing alternatives to opioids. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, uh, Deb, on this one. And that you know, the the whole safe supply issue came about during COVID when people could no longer attend a safe injection location, and the government was fearful about withdrawal and all those other uh, legitimate concerns, and so set up this program. But the rate at which they're prescribing these opioids is unprecedented in British Columbia, and there is no question that they're being diverted. That is, that is, it's happening. And you can argue about the rates of diversion, but the reality is that they are being diverted. 
and new drug users are being created because they think they're being given a government-issued drug. And they don't realize and recognize the dangers that this drug possesses. And they're not buying it off the street corner. And so it, it, for me, I think that maybe it was a policy that was well-intended, but it certainly had unintended consequences that we need to be able to discuss without being labeled uh, in the terms that the Minister of, of Mental Health described. Yeah, stigma and fear. Gretchen saying, just for our listeners, I'll take a, a moment here. Uh, Karen mentioned diversion. So what's happening is that uh, addicts who are going to get safe supply from the government, not all, as Karen said, you can debate the sort of the prevalence of it, but are then selling these government-issued pharmaceuticals on the street and getting money to then get illegal drugs uh, as well. Gretchen saying your comments. So just your earlier point, you were saying, you know, government shouldn't provide uh, drugs to, uh, or <clears throat> the language you used was, you know, this kind of support to individuals. Like when you, the, the reality is that when you have a healthcare system in place, there's research by professionals who provide specific medication to individuals to help them in their healthcare situation. We go to, you know, you go for a surgery, you're going to get morphine, that's an opioid. Now, when people who are struggling with something which is a mental health issue, something like addiction, something that should not be criminalized, something that should have an appropriate course of action to get them better and healed, if healthcare professionals are recommending a specific path, then we should leave these things up to the healthcare professionals. The problem is that we have healthcare discussions that are now falling into the hands or being politicized. And when you have these issues being politicized, then what you have is you don't have scientifically or research-informed decisions around healthcare policy. So be it any form of, of healthcare access, like when you, people get prescribed medication, people get prescribed drugs. If someone is suffering from an addiction or suffering from some sort of mental health issue and it requires a specific kind of, of medication to treat them, and that's being verified by healthcare professionals, then we should leave it up to the healthcare experts, and we should, I think, all of us take a back seat and let those who have the education and expertise drive that car. Sarjeet Kora, I apologize. I'm out of time, so I don't get to ask you on this topic. I am going to ask our listeners, though, in the next hour about the issue of safe supply. My thanks to Karen Stintz, Gretchen Singh, and Sarjeet Kaur for joining me on this Tuesday afternoon as our smart speakers. Coming up after the break, we are going to have a visit by the Toronto Star Queen's Park Bureau Chief Robert Benzie. He's going to tell us what fun and frivolity happened at the Pink Palace during question period this afternoon. Afternoon.